Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Good morning. Yeah, I usually say at the beginning of the service, y'all a little caught off guard, but my name is Ali Tillman. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so thankful to be able to be sharing this message with you guys. It really is a great week to be here. We're in our second week of Nehemiah, so we picked this book of the Bible that's the story about this guy, Nehemiah, because we love this story, and we hope that you will too. I'm going to give us a little bit of a recap. If you've been following along in our scripture plan, then you're already up to speed, but for those of you who have yet to sign up, this is what the story of Nehemiah begins with. It actually starts way before Nehemiah's birth, about 100 or so years before, in a town that we all know called Jerusalem. In that town was the center of Israelite and Jewish civilization, but things got a little wacky around the year 580 BC, and the Babylonians came and took over, and when they did, as was the practice, they forced all of the Israelites to march to Babylon. And there they lived for about 100 or 150 years in exile. And that's where we meet Nehemiah. You see, up until this point, there have been a few groups who have been let go and and they can go back to Jerusalem. But Nehemiah is part of the remnant, part of the people who remained in Babylon. You see, the Persians had conquered the Babylonians and now the Persians were graciously letting the Jews go back to their homeland. But some had stayed behind, including Nehemiah. You see, they hadn't known anything different than Babylon. They were born there, they were raised there. And over time, they had become part of the people. They had gotten really cool positions in the, in the court and in the palace, and that's what happened to Nehemiah. He was an official for the Persian king. And he had a great job, he had a great life there, but one day, one of his brothers, one of his Israelite brothers, comes back after the journey to Jerusalem, comes back and, and starts to report the news. And Nehemiah asks, hey, how is it going in our hometown? How is it going? How are things? We've been back there for about 100 years now since the exile. Surely things are really good. We're getting close to that dream of being able to take over the world from God's name. And Hananiah, the brother, says, ooh, it's not so good. It's not good. The walls have been destroyed in Jerusalem. There are very few buildings to speak of. It's actually not at all what we thought it was going to be. And Nehemiah, he's really affected by this news. He's really sad. He actually starts to cry and to weep because he knows what that means. They had all these expectations when they went back to Jerusalem that maybe they could rebuild and restart again. And even a hundred years later, it, it doesn't seem like that's happening for the Israelites. And so last week, we talked about how Nehemiah had a plan. How did he face this news? And we went through these three steps that Nehemiah did when he heard the news about the walls in Jerusalem. First, he sits to weep. He was heartbroken over this loss. And he took time to lament, is the word that we use in religion sometimes, lament. But then he moved on to prayer. And he pens this beautiful prayer to God, praying on behalf of his people. And he asked God for God's provision 
And then finally, Nehemiah stands to act. He takes up all of his courage and all of the fear that he has, and he goes in front of the king, Artaxerxes, and he says, I need to go home. I need to go. Will you let me go? And because of God's provision, King Artaxerxes says, yes. He says, yes, you can go. What do you need? And he sends Nehemiah with his army and he can go back to Jerusalem. So that's where we meet Nehemiah this week at that last step where he's standing to act. He's ready. He's ready to act on this plan that God has given him. And so Nehemiah with this army, this Persian army that he's ready to go back to Jerusalem, he inserts the reverse directions in Google, Google and heads back to Jerusalem some almost 700 miles back to Jerusalem with this army through enemy territory. And he gets to Jerusalem and it looks something like this, but without the walls. There's still no walls in Jerusalem. And for us, that's a little hard to imagine what that looks like or feels like. But for city-states that are small like this in the ancient Middle East, walls mean everything. The walls are what held everything together. The walls were not only the sense of security that enemies wouldn't come in, which was a constant threat for them, but it also meant that it protected what was already there. So the cities that didn't have walls, the poor towns that couldn't build walls, they were the poorest, the most desolate. They were the ones who were prone to starvation. They were the ones who got constantly attacked constantly massacred because they didn't have walls. And for a hundred years, the Israelites been back in Jerusalem and they had built a temple. They had built some houses. They had maybe built some farms, but they just hadn't got to the walls yet. And so for a hundred years, Jerusalem stood like this, but without any sense of security, without any sense of community without any sense of being rebuilt from the former life that it had. I think there's a lot in how Nehemiah responds to this when he gets there that we can learn from. You see, what we're gonna talk about today is what to do when you're at that point, when something has broken your heart. You have seen a commercial or talked to a friend. You have had an interaction on the street. Something has broken your heart and told you that you want something to change that you are part of the solution and that you want the world to change and you are ready to act. And I think Nehemiah shows us, gives us a little bit of a map or a guidelines of how to move forward when we're ready to act. And maybe a safeguard in terms of how we normally act. So let's, let's read what Nehemiah does as soon as he gets there. He says, when I reached Jerusalem and I'd been there for three days, I set out at night, taking only a few people with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God was prompting me to do for Jerusalem. He stayed there for three days and he didn't say a word to anyone about his plan. Not a word. And when we're reading this straight up, it might not seem that remarkable, but let me, let me do a little thought experiment. When something happens, when you see something in the news, when you see something online, when you see something on the television, we have now a response in our culture where the first reaction is not to not tell anyone, right? The first reaction is to get on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and immediately 
respond. Something interesting has happened in our world, right? Because now the 14-year-old from Seoul, South Korea, and the 72-year-old from Dallas, Texas, you, you each have the same platform. You each can use your same voice. And so sometimes when we feel things or we see something that breaks our heart, we're so quick to react and use our voice because that's the tool that we think we can have. But what's interesting, and I think the wisdom that Nehemiah offers in this is that he shuts up. He doesn't say anything for three days. He takes his time. And while we might look at this and see that that's inactive, you're not doing anything, Nehemiah. I think the key to this is that it gave Nehemiah the time to prepare his mind and prepare his work. It gave him the opportunity to respond intentionally to the plan that he wanted to enact. The next thing that Nehemiah does is he goes and inspects the walls. And this is related to the first one. Some of us react really quickly with our voices. Other of us react really quickly with our actions. I am very, very guilty of this. When I see a problem, once I know that I want to be involved, my first impulse is just to go and do it. Like, that's what I want to do. I just want to do it. I don't want to sit through a 30-hour training for you to tell me how to do things. I want to do it. And that happened to me this recently. A few months ago, I stood up here and I told you guys that I was feeling God pulling my heart towards the direction of foster care and adoption. And one of the first steps that I wanted to take in that was volunteering for CASA. Some of y'all know what that is. Some of y'all are CASA advocates. They're court-appointed advocates that uh, advocate for kids in foster care. And it's a really great program. And I knew that that was obedient to God. That's what I needed to do next. So I signed up and I just got through this training. I got done on Friday and sworn in. But before I did, about the second hour of training, I was ready. I was done. I was, I was like, all right, put me on a case. I got it. I'm going to go. I'm going to kick. I'm going to do a lot. Of, I almost said something really bad. I shouldn't have. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? I was really excited to get started because I'm that kind of person. And maybe you are too. Like we might not respond with our voices immediately, but we're going to respond with our actions. We're going to get it done. And I think what Nehemiah shows us and what the folks at CASA knew too, was that first, you have to inspect the walls. You have to know what you're working with. You have to go and sit and scrutinize, scrutinize that word inspect. It doesn't mean just to like cursory glance over. It really means to like dig into the details, to actually scrutinize it, to go up and look at it very closely. And he did that. He thought that that was necessary for him to go and change the world and change the world of Jerusalem. He first had to inspect the walls. And I think sometimes we're really quick to react with our actions, at least I am. And the wisdom here that Nehemiah shows us of inspecting the walls, I think is really helpful. But maybe you don't fit into these first two categories. You're not a very reactive person. You respond. That's not, that's not your temptation, but maybe this is, because this is what Nehemiah does next. He gathers all the Jews together, all the Israelites together, and he's, he gives a speech. And he says, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem, it lies in ruins. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I think for some of us, the temptation when we look at the world and when we look at what is wrong with the world, is that we think we can do it on our own. 
I think what's so brilliant about what Nehemiah does here is that he includes not, all, not only all the Jews, but he includes himself in that problem. He knows that he can't be the savior, that he can't just write the check or recruit the Persian armies to outsource the wall. He includes the people in the work. He knows that he can't go it alone. And for some of us, that is the temptation when we look at what is heartbreaking in the world, is that we think we can do it on our own. We don't want to involve other people. And to be honest, there's a good reason for that. Sometimes when we involve other people, it gets messier, gets more complicated. But Nehemiah doesn't mind that. He knows that that is the right call. And so he gathers all the Jews together and says, come, let us rebuild the wall. And their response, as you can imagine, was like, yes, let's do it. Let's rebuild this wall. Let's do it. And their hands were strengthened, is what it says, to do this good work. To do this good work. And so they got all excited. They got all pl plugged in and they were ready to build the wall. But this has happened before. They lived in Jerusalem for a hundred years. They've had other building projects. They've had to build other things. So what was it about the wall that made it different? What was it about this building project that actually made it last, not just physically last, but also made Jerusalem thrive? What was done differently about this project than the temples and the houses and the farms that they had built before? I think the answer lies in the third chapter of Nehemiah. It's one of, if not my favorite, passages in scripture. And when I read it, you will think that I'm nuts for thinking that. But bear with me, I have some helpers who are gonna help demonstrate this. So if you're coming up here, we all come up, you know who you are. Here's the deal. These folks are gonna help me. They're gonna build my wall haha, <laughs> with me, all right? And as they do, I'm gonna read this third chapter. Now, if you were here last year, you remember the rule of thumb about um, reading biblical names is that you just have to be super confident and like say it straight out. I ask you to give me grace as we're doing this. Are you ready? Are you ready for me to read this? Set them down. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna build on this brown line and it has to be at least four blocks tall, but no taller than that because then you'll block Kent's drums. Got it? All right, let's go. Ready? Elisha, the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Go ahead, start building. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated as far as the towner of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section and Zachar, son of Emery, built next to them. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired the next section. Next to him, Mashalim, son of Barakiah, the son of Meshazabal, made repairs. Woo! And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. Joada, Pasiah's son, and Meshalem, Basodiah's son, repaired the Mishnah gate. They laid its beams and set up its doors, bolts and bars. Next to them, repairs were made by Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jaden the Merathonite. And the people of Gibeon and Mizpah, who were ruled by the governor of the province of beyond the river. Uziel, Hananiah's son, the gold bis, made repairs next to them. And Hananiah's, one of the perfumers, made repairs next to him. They restored 
Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Whew. Next to him, Rephaniah, her son, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jedidiah, Haramphah's son, made repairs, now opposite his house. And Hatush, Hashabaniah's son, made repairs next to him. Malchahijah, Haram's son, and Hashab, Paramasim's son, repaired another section at the Tower of the Ovens. Next to them, Shalom, Halahesha's son, ruler of that district of Jerusalem, made repairs. And also with long his, with his daughters. Whoo! And that... Thank you guys. That looks awesome. I'm really glad though that y'all were not in charge of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful and it's always so much fun. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you guys. Y'all can take, y'all can go. You got it. So there are 20 more verses of this. 20 more. I only read 12. There are 20 more verses of this chapter in scripture. Oh, yes, we're very glad. The Israelites would have been, would have been wrecked. It's all right, y'all. We probably need to glue it. You probably need to glue it? Do you think they had glue back with the Israelites? No, but... They had mortar. That... Ah. <laughs> That's all good. I trust you. Thanks. Thanks, Sophia. So this chapter, with literally all these names, one right after another, that's my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. And I kid you not, this is my favorite chapter because I love this idea of all of these folks lining up against a wall and repairing it one right next to another, right next to another. And you'll notice in the scripture that it didn't matter whether they were perfumers or priests, whether they were gatekeepers, whether they were men or women, whether they're from the immediate tribe of Israel or whether they were outside. They all came together and they built this wall one right next to another. Isn't that incredible? And it takes the time to list out all the names. Nowhere else in scripture, other than genealogies, does it list out the names of the people who did the work. And I think what's so amazing about this scripture are the words that were repeated. You'll notice there's two. And in scripture, whenever things are repeated, it's a big deal. The authors did it on purpose. So there's two words that are repeated. One is next to, and the other is repairs or made repairs. Next to is yad, it means hand. That's how you describe in Hebrew when someone is next to someone, it means within arm's reach. The other one is chazdak, that means repairs. And do you know that the word for chazdak, the word for repairs, it's never ever used in another context in scripture to mean actually physically making repairs. Do you know what, where it's used and why and how it's used? It means to make stronger. To make stronger, usually it's talking about someone's heart. This idea that there were all of these people, hands with apart, working next to each other, and it wasn't just about the walls. What God was doing through this group of people by aligning them right next to each other, one beside the other, what they were doing was God was saying, look, you're gonna build this wall and it will hold you together. But it will not just hold you together, literally, it will hold you together because each one of you is working alongside and I will repair what you have forgotten, what you have been banished out of Jerusalem before and now we have to rebuild this community. You have to make repairs, not just to the wall, but to yourselves and I will give you a project to do that with. It was not just about the walls. It was about rebuilding the people who built the walls. 
It was about fusing them together, one brick on top of another brick, interlocked so that it was stronger. I love this passage of scripture because when I go home, when I read it to myself, do you know how I read it? The way I read it is that it's the Jensen's working alongside the Fearsons. It's the Vosses working alongside the Manners. It's the Brattons working alongside the Days. It's the Days working alongside the Huddlestons. It's the Allens working alongside the Andersons. It's, it's the McKays working alongside the Loves. It's the Loves working alongside. That's how I read it. Because this scripture, to me, is what the church looks like. It is one family working alongside another, not just to rebuild the walls, not just to change the world, but to make them stronger too. What is so powerful about this story of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls is that it's not just true for them, but it's a lesson that's true for us as well. And so I thought what would be helpful for us as a church is if we went through and read all of those names together. <laughs> can we? No, but the truth is there is something that happens when people come together and they work alongside each other, with each other for a common purpose, for a common commitment. And so that's why this morning I'm excited to tell you about what's happening in about a month's time. We're going to have our first ever commitment Sunday as a church. Now, for some of you, if you're a guest, you go, great, we picked the Sunday that they're talking about money. <laughs> and you did. But the reason is because it's important. The reason we're calling it Commitment Sunday is because that's really what it's about. It's about us coming together as a church, recognizing that God can do more through us collectively than God can do through us individually. If you just look around this room this morning, we have people sitting in overflow. We baptize six individuals. There is a lot of work that God is doing here in this place, but there is a lot more work that God wants to do through us. And so this commitment, this all-in commitment is really simple, and it looks like two things. The first is I want all of us to be in together, and that means 100% participation, whether that's $1 or a lot of dollars what I hope is that we'd recognize that this is something that happens better together. The reason that you interlock the bricks instead of just stacking them up in their own individual columns is because it displaces the forces that work against the wall more effectively. That's what happens when we come together as a church. When just a couple of individuals support or a couple of families are committed, it helps, it's meaningful. It allows us to do more ministry in our community but it's not the same when we all come together and we say we're all in. The other thing that it means is on an individual level, we should be all in. And so we're asking that you would give boldly. And what boldly means is that it causes you to trust God with the gift that you're giving. Again, for some of you, this might be as simple as five or $10. We recognize everybody's situation is different, but for others of us, that will look different and it will require us to give more because that's what a bold gift will look like for each of us. But here's what I know what will happen, is God will use our faithfulness and God will leverage our generosity, continue to do work in this world. And what I loved about what Allie said in her sermon 
is that the work that they were doing was not just rebuilding physical walls. Because especially in the recent weeks, there are re walls to rebuild in our community. But what also was rebuilt is the lives of the individuals involved. And I think that's what we have seen happen here over the last two years of our life as a church. I look around this room and I see individuals whose lives have been rebuilt because of the work of God's grace. I see families who are stronger than they were before. I see marriages who have been healed and saved. I see addictions overcome. And that's just what's happened in this room. Can you imagine what God's gonna be able to do when we're all in together through the lives of the people that you know? God uses each one of us to do his work in the world. And it is a good work. And it is a work that we need to all be in together. In a couple weeks, probably in a week and a half, you'll receive a letter in the mail. And in that letter, there's a commitment card. There's one per household, but there will be others available for the kids in their classrooms as well. We ask that you take that commitment card, you pray over your commitment for the upcoming year of 2020. And on December 1st, we're gonna to come together as a family, and we're going to bring those commitment cards up front. The reason that we talk about it like this is because I think Stephen and I both truly deep in our bones believe the generosity, it changes the world, and we know it does that, but man, it changes you first. When you live your life open-handedly, when you put your trust in God, when you release your life to the power that is God's grace, amazing things happen in your life. And that's how the world changes. You see, it was important that God change the people of Israel because the people of Israel, that's who was gonna change the world. I'm really excited to do this with you guys because it's really important, not just for us as a church, but for you individually. So I'm gonna to pray to close this out, and then we get to join together and take communion together, which nothing feels more appropriate than taking communion together as a family right now. So let's pray together as we move forward in our service. Dear Lord, God, you are so good. You are so good to put such simple things like people's names in the Bible. But it's amazing to think that 2,000 or more years later, those names still remain. The legacy of those people still remain and it is by your grace that they do. We ask that we may be Nehemiah's people, that we may be the Israelites who look around and see something broken and join together to rebuild the walls. And we hope that in that moment, when we do, that you may work to rebuild us as well. We are your people first and foremost, and we love you. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.